Good morning. My name is Betsy Thompson, and it is my privilege to read the scripture this morning. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. I will read verses 1 through 9. 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 9. Please uh, rise for the honor of reading God's word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. This was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. We are in our series entitled Shattered, When Life Goes to Pieces. And um, we are looking at the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, as we look at this book, we see that it's, we, we call it really a shattered book. And what, what I mean by that is this, is that it shows life in all of its messiness with all of the decisions and uh, decisions that people make to mess things up. We're really good at messing things up, right? I mean, we're, we're really good at, at doing things, and, and, and we wonder, how could God ever use us? I remember, I remember when I was a young man, and I would hear these stories about these people of God, and I began to wonder, are they really human? It seemed like I couldn't relate to them at all. It was, they were so far above and beyond that I wanted someone who struggled like me. And that's how it was presented to me, is stories that I would hear, sermons that I would hear as a boy. But as I got older and I started really reading the Word of God myself, I saw that the Bible really does present people in all of their brokenness, shows them in all of the struggles, choices that they make, but how God works His purposes even in the midst of our shattered lives, even as the, the, the shards of our life are there. And we think that it's beyond hope, beyond fixing. God takes those shattered pieces and rebuilds them for the glory of His name. And so today we're going to look at an episode with two characters, uh, the first two kings in Israel's history. We have King Saul, who is the anointed, the king that the people wanted, and we have King David. And we're seeing this relationship that they have. And we're going to see that it becomes one of tense rival, rivalry. Matter of fact, it's one of jealousy. Now, when I think of the term of jealousy, I'm reminded of a quote that I saw a few years ago about Oprah Winfrey. Now, Oprah is uh, it's like trying to nail her down theologically, and what she believes is like trying to nail jello to a wall. Uh, because it floats, depending on who she's with and what she's talking about. She says she's a Christian, yet she doesn't believe the Bible. I don't know how you justify those two things. Uh, you're, you can't just choose your own adventure and put whatever label you want on it. You have to follow what the Word of God says. But she says, I rejected the God of the Bible. And she tells the story of how and when she rejected uh, the God of the Bible. She was a girl. She was sitting in services. And she heard that God was jealous, is a jealous God. 
And that really bothered her. For in her mind, jealousy is completely an, a, a wrong thing. She said, well, if God is jealous, then that's just not becoming. Then he must not be real. So she rejected the God of the Bible because of that. Now, today we're going to be delving into this topic of jealousy. And as I've thought about it, I've wondered myself, is je- what is jealousy? I mean, can you define it? It's one of those things that when we experience it, we know what it is. But can you define it? Can you, can you really figure out what it is? And is it ever good? Is it always bad? In, in her mind, jealousy is always wrong no matter what way you, you put it. But, you know, the Bible actually says that our God is a jealous God. Matter of fact, it says that his name is jealous, according to the book of Exodus. So what does that mean? Is that a bad thing or is it a good thing? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to see what jealousy is, that God is talking about our shattered emotions, that we all have this tendency to, to be jealous of someone else. When someone gets promoted and we don't, or someone is, is being blessed and we don't, and we wonder to ourselves, how is it that they get that and we don't? We're jealous of them. So today we're going to talk about what jealousy is. We're going to define it. We're going to see how it develops in our own lives and then we're going to see what God says about it and how we are to, to respond to that. But before we go any further, let's ask for God's blessing on our message time, shall we? Our Father, we come into your presence boldly by the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our midst. And Lord, how you have given your word to speak to the condition of our hearts. Lord, you see us in all of our messiness, and yet you still speak to us. You still love us despite ourselves. And Lord, we are grateful that you are a God of mercy, that you are the God of grace, that you are the God of hope, and you are the God of second chances. So Lord, we pray that you speak to us today. Show us the reality of who we are. Help us to understand and see uh, the lives of these two men and uh, the truths therein, that we can apply the truths that are there and avoid the sins in which they are adhering to. So Lord, please speak to us. Glorify your name. We pray a blessing on us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm, um, whenever we use words, it's very, very important that we understand and define our terms. Sometimes in our world today, people want the word to mean whatever it means. So before we can really understand and explore what God is saying to us within his word, we need to explore this definition or get a definition of what jealousy is. And as, as we're getting ready to give this definition, I also want to talk about the, give me, uh, to give you a little bit of background of what's going on in our story. For those that aren't familiar, perhaps, with this wonderful text. But if you remember, as I just said before, Saul is the first king in Israel's history. He's a good-looking guy. We said that he looks like uh, uh, Liam Helmsworth or Chris Helmsworth, which one everyone would place the word. I can never remember which brother it is. But he's this good-looking guy, but he is a guy who is very fearful. He cares more about what people think rather than what God thinks. And uh, along comes David. Now, David is the youngest of the sons of Jesse. He is a shepherd boy. He's also a very talented musician. That's the first experience he actually ever has with Saul, is that he ends up playing for Saul uh, to help calm him as a stress relief. And also, he is just being besieged by a, a demonic spirit. And whenever David plays, for whatever reason, it calms Saul down. I mean, he didn't have the luxury today of, like, the things that we have. He didn't have uh, just music at his, his fingertips. He didn't have Pandora or Spotify or anything like that. He had to have a musician come in, and David would come in. That's his first experience with him. And David proves himself to be a really good musician and also great help. He actually becomes Saul's armor bearer. But yet, Saul just sees him as a kid. Not really sees him knowing really his name and his family and all about him. Not until David steps in to battle Goliath. That's when kind of David's coming out party, if you will. 
He's this 14, 15-year-old kid. He sees the entire Israeli army or the Jewish army is just fearful of the Philistines, particularly their champion, this giant behemoth of a man named Goliath who is standing out day by day right at the edge of, right in the middle of the valley as the army is right behind him. He's blaspheming and calling out not just the army of Israel, but he's calling out Israel's God. And David shows up to visit his brothers and he is frustrated when he hears this. And he, he says, I'm going to go to battle. I'll do this battle if you'll let me go do it. And King Saul, being the coward that he is, is willing to let a 14-year-old kid fight his battle for him. David goes out there with confidence of God, knowing that he is going to be victorious, takes his, his five smooth stones in his sling, writes it out there, casts it, and totally comes at Goliath, casts him, hit him in the head, knocking him down, and then killing him, and then cutting off his head. This isn't a G, G-rated book story, by the way. It's very graphic in how it describes just what happened there. But it was showing that David is this champion, and Saul is overjoyed. Ends up the, Phil- the Philistine army ends up kind of, uh, there was a battle that ensues and Israel wins and defeats the Philistines. And now we enter into this episode where, where David has befriended Saul's son, Jonathan. Says that they're good friends. We just read that. They become really close friends. Jonathan sees the hand of God on David, is fully supportive, supportive of him. And Saul, though, is not so much. Saul, matter of fact, Saul is at first kind of delighting in the victory until they get back and all these ladies come out dancing with tambourines and singing and their stringed instruments and they're shouting. They give, they give Saul first billing, like, way to go, Saul! Yeah, Saul, you're the king! You know, you've killed your thousands! Woohoo! But David, tens of thousands! David, you rock! You know, he's a rock star. And Saul's like, wait a minute. He's getting more praise than I am. I mean, I got first bill, but he's getting a lot more praise. And there's this, it says that he eyes him from that day forward. There's this, this animosity ends into this relationship, not on David's side, but on Saul's side. And he becomes, in essence, jealous. Now, what is jealousy? I want to give us a definition to set it out for us today. Here's the definition. Jealousy is the feeling a person experiences when there is a perceived threat of loss of someone or something that is believed to be theirs. So uh, let me read that again. It is the feeling a person experiences. So it's the feeling that comes upon us as humans uh, when there is a perceived threat. A perceived threat means that the threat might be real or it might be not real. And that's what we're going to see. That will determine whether it's good or bad, depending upon whether the perception is just in one's head or is it's based in reality. There's perceived threat of loss of someone or something that is believed to be theirs. So that's what we're, we, we need to see that there are good, there is a good jealousy or a bad jealousy. For example, here's an example of a good jealousy. If, um, if a husband is at a, a group or get together and, and uh, he sees his wife talking to this man who is obviously flirting with his wife, there's going to be feelings overcome him. Now, people say, well, that is, is it justified or not? Now, see, he's perceiving that he could be a threat of loss of his wife's affections. And in that regard, it's, is his perception real and based in reality? And if the man's intent really was to do that, then his perception is real and good. He should be. That is rightfully his. That is for him and him alone. He should have that love for his wife, and she should have his. It's exclusive relationship. That is a justified jealousy. That's a good thing. But it can be, let's, let's try to change it a little bit and see where it's a bad thing. Now, let's say that he perceives that there's flirting going on, but there's really not. 
going on. So his perception is wrong. It's not based in reality. And then it can be bad. Now, the question is, is this is where it gets kind of murky, is we don't know about our perceptions, if they're real or not. And that's what we have to take them to God and really see. Is our perception right or not? I mean, imagine for another moment that there's a, this is where the perception would be bad. If this young man, let's imagine a, ma- a young man likes a girl, but she, she has no interest in him whatsoever. And she sees him talking to a guy and is, he gets jealous. Does he have the right to be jealous? No, because that is not his. She has no interest in him. It is not based on reality. That's only in his mind in that regard. So it's, it's wrong there. So we have to understand it's about the perception. Is it his to have or not, or hers to have. That his perception, though, is wrong. Or if we take it further, we have a guy and a girl are dating, and he perceives a man is flirting with her, but there is not really any flirting. He just perceives it to be. He's reading into it. Then it's wrong because he is perceived wrongly. So it's about our perceptions. So there are instances when jealousy is justified, when the threat of loss to what one truly deserves is there, but it is not justified when there's no real threat of loss. Now, this might seem strange to many of us because most of us in our mind have only seen it in a negative light. But I'd like us to look at certain scriptures for a moment. I'm going to put these up on the screen for us today to show uh, how this definition plays out. The first one is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 through 6. This is God speaking, and he says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath. It's talking about idolatry. Or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. But see, there's because what he's saying there is there an affection that is mine. There's when we worship, when we adhere to something, we're giving the essence of who we are. And here we're giving it to an object. Now, does that object deserve it? No, it's not. That's why God's saying, No, I am a jealous because that is mine. That is deserved and made for me and me alone. I have made man and I have made man for myself. And when he turns, I burn with jealousy because I love him so much and want what is best for him, which is me. See, God longs to give us himself. He shows the depth of his love in that regard. So he burns with jealousy when we turn away from that which cannot truly, when we turn to things that cannot truly satisfy us, which is idolatry and the things that are not of God. And he says, I am the Lord, uh, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He longs to show himself to us. Now here's another one from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verse 13 through 15. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. Now, these were poles uh, that were erected to the, the false goddess Asherah, where people would commit certain sexual acts of immorality that were there to incur the goddess's favor, who was also a goddess of fertility. So they would do these things, and God is burning, and he says, No, you're turning into something that does not satisfy. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you were invited, you eat of his sacrifice. In other words, there is that threat, and for God, the perception is real. See, we are tinged by sin, and our perspective is limited, but not so with God. See, God is the only one in whom it is, jealousy is always a holy and righteous thing, because it is perfected in him, because he does not 
see things that are not there. He sees truly in the depths of our heart. So for him, it's not just a perceived sense of loss, but it's a real sense of loss because it's not something he believes to be his, but it is his. So we see here that jealousy can be a very good thing and it can be a very bad thing depending on whether the perception that we have is based in reality and in truth and our perspective is right. So so we have this definition of jealousy that we're going to be working off as we work through this. But the question that we have is, is how does jealousy develop? We need to examine the development of jealousy. How does it appear? And we're going to see that in in, in really between David and King Saul. We're going to see this develop within Saul as he interacts with David. So I hope he, hopefully you will look at the scriptures with me as we walk through this. So we're in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, and we're in verse 6. And the scripture says, As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, it's, it's Goliath, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel. It's a big party, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. See, notice for Saul, it begins with a perceived slight, which is, and it leads him quickly to anger. Anger. See, jealousy starts off with anger at a perceived or real slight. Now, I had this happen in my own family in a pretty graphic uh, way. I had a relative of mine recently whose uh, spouse, his wife, left him. And uh, I've been working with this family member trying to talk them through this situation. And I said, well, what led to the separation? Help me out to understand how I can help you. And he said, well, we were at uh, our grandmother's funeral. I said, yeah, I remember that, being at the funeral. And he said, there were pictures up of the family, right? And I said, yeah. And he had been, uh, this relative had been married before. And uh, he and his first wife divorced. And, and yet he had come to know the Lord. And he ended up getting married again. And he said, uh, there was a picture of the family from years ago, but it had the first wife in it. And she saw that, and she was angry. She was jealous. First, she's angry because she perceives a slight. Like, why did you do that? They, she thought it was intentional, but it wasn't. It was just a step of ignorance on the family. It didn't mean to cause such a hurt by that. But she held that in because she said, that's rightfully my place. Why did they do that? They must not want me to be a part of this family. So it's angry. She starts off to be very, very angry. And it, and it leads much further and escalates. And we see that actually with, with Saul, that he has anger. They're giving him this praise, I've been slighted. Have you ever been slighted before? Someone takes credit for something or they... they uh, seemingly did the same job you did, but they might did a little bit better, but yet you feel you deserve the acclaim or that recognition and you felt, you know, just glossed over. And then what happens then? Well, see, it moves from anger, it moves into suspicion. Notice what happens as he goes through this. See, he says in uh, the latter part of verse 8, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Now he's suspicious. He's thinking that David is going to be, he's going to take his kingdom from him. See, now remember, Saul had been judged by, in essence, God had judged Saul and decreed that he would lose his kingdom. Now he suffered from a little bit of paranoia. 
When is that going to happen? And matter of fact, Samuel had told him that God had rejected him as king. And he's saying that God is looking now for another king, a man after his own heart. And he's thinking, David is that guy. He's going to take me out. Everybody loves him more than me. He's more popular than me. What else can he have but the throne? So he now has become suspicious. And it says that he eyed him from that day forward. See, when someone hurts you and you, you suddenly pay closer attention to them, you become suspicious and you become imputing their motives. You ever had that? I've seen people say that all, the, the people have come to me all the time and they said, well, so-and-so did this to hurt me. Really? Did they do it for that reason? Are you sure about that? Yes, I'm sure. Why are you sure? Well, because they hurt me before. But now you're reading into their motive. Are you, did you confront them about it? Well, no. Well, wh- why not? Why didn't you confront them about it? Because see, now you've let it grow in your mind. And you've let that slight become bigger and bigger. And now you become suspicious of every single thing that they do. Because you have said that their motives were impure. So we see we have to be very careful of that. That's what happens. Jealousy develops with anger. It moves to suspicion. And then it's driven by fear. It's driven by fear. Notice verse 10 again. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. See, he knows that the only thing that he has that David doesn't is the kingdom. And he knows now that God has departed from him and has gone to David. And he's thinking to himself, I, have, I am fearful that David's going to take what I have. And so he seeks to eliminate David. Now, this is a complicated relationship. I mean, and we'll see that it actually develops further and further, that he begins to plot to the point where he takes Jonathan, which happens to be Saul's son, who is the heir to the throne. Jonathan becomes David's best friend. He even starts using his son in a plot to assassinate David. When, and he also not only does that, he finds out one of his daughters has a crush on David, promises her in marriage, but when the time comes, he gives her to somebody else. But then he finds out that his second daughter likes David. So he comes up with another plot. He goes, if I can marry her off, Perhaps then I can control David and bring him down if I bring him part of the family. It's the whole concept of keep your, your, your friends close and your enemies closer. So that's, what, that's what's doing. And, and honestly, what we see happen in their lives is that Saul tries to kill David 12 separate times. Now, I know that my in-laws didn't like me at the beginning. But I don't think they tried to kill me. But I could be wrong in that. Okay? That's what happens, though. So he's trying to kill him. I mean, this is Saul's son's best friend. It's his wife's husband. He's one of his inner circle. He's one of his generals. And he is completely jealous of this guy. I mean, see how it's developing within him and it's growing? And that same can happen with any one of us. We can all be jealous. And you know who some of the worst, worst, uh, uh, most guilty people are at this? I hate to say this, but pastors, Christians, because we can mask it in godliness and a concern for others like, oh, you need to pray for this person. We're trying to bring him down and using spiritual language to do it. Where we try to, I mean, pastors can become suspicious of one another when someone else's church is growing and theirs is not. Or they're receiving a claim and you're not. Become suspicious. Become fearful. It's driven by 
fear. But then it leads to hatred. It leads to hatred. Now let me ask you a question. Who do you hate? You have one person in your mind. Some of you might have a dozen. But there is somebody that you can't stand. You hate them. Why? Why? Why do you hate them? Is it because you're jealous? Is it because they've, they've gotten more than you? They hurt you or did they really hurt you? See, that's what Saul, he leads to hate. He, and he has to eliminate it. He's so afraid. It's, dri- it's driving him. Excuse me, it's driving him because he's paranoid and fearful. And see, what happens with fear is that the devil takes our fear and he amplifies it in our imagination. And that becomes to rule us when our imagination gets out of control. And so that's what Saul's thinking. He's going to try to take the kingdom. He's going to try to kill me. And time and time again, David reassures him, I am not trying to kill you. I'm not trying to kill you. And some pretty interesting and funny comical stories that actually happen in the scripture, we see that there's times where basically Saul is delivered to the hand of David, but David won't touch the Lord's anointed. So his paranoia and his fear was completely unjustified. David was not out to get him, but he began to hate David and wanted to remove him. So now we've seen, we have a definition of jealousy. We've seen how it develops in our lives. And now we need to see how we're going to get rid of it. We have to destroy it, especially that bad jealousy. Remember, there's a good jealousy, but how do we destroy this bad jealousy that's there? Because we, we can't continue to live in it. Because you know why? They, actually, they call jealousy the green-eyed monster. Do you know that? Because it consumes us. It consumes us. It just drives us, and it pushes at us. And it causes us to make very rash decisions and, and, and just wrong choices and do things and go places and, and go beyond our means because we feel like we deserve this. We have to learn how to destroy it. The first thing that we do, the, and there's the six steps in how we can destroy this. The first is this. We have to renounce jealousy as sin. You have to recognize it. You have to call it what it is. And I recommend you doing this out loud. See, there's something about saying it and stating it that makes it much more real to us when we admit it. It's not just in our heart. We don't try to rationalize it anymore. We don't try to excuse it. When you state it for what it is and all of its ugliness, there becomes a freedom that happens. It comes a recognition. I mean, we have to renounce it. God doesn't want us to hold on to it. God doesn't want you to be jealous or to be driven in that way. God wants you to be content with what he has given you. So we have to, to renounce it when it comes to us. Secondly, we have to remember our rival in prayer. So, so I'm saying we have to pray for those that we are jealous of and that we have issue with. Now, some of you are like, I will pray for them as the psalmist prayed. It's an imprecatory prayer. I am praying that God would bring curses down upon him. All right? And we think that to ourselves. I pray that God will take them off of this earth. And do it now. <laughs> All right? And we, we think that. But that's what that's, he's saying there. He says that we are to pray for one another. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks about this. Jesus lays it out for it in the book of Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 45. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I just say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. We're to pray for them because, see, when we pray for them, God starts working a change within us. We start seeing them in a different light. We have to let go of our bitterness and give it over to God so that God will deal with that situation. And we're not hating them, but we're trying to then love them, which is very hard to do. That's what God calls us to. We must remember then our arrival in prayer. Then we must reaffirm God's goodness to us. You have to reaffirm God's goodness. Because, see, we start to question God's goodness. We wonder why God blessed that person and not me. God, why did you give this person that and not me? Why did they get that house and not me? Why did they get that car? Why did they get that promotion? Why did I get glossed over? Why did they steal my ideas and they get approval and yet I'm the one that's suffering? Why? You ever had that happen? You ever felt someone else got blessed? Why did that person get those kids? Why couldn't they have mine? Why do we do that? So we ask these questions, and really what we're denying is the goodness of God. That's what Eve did, remember? She questioned God's goodness when she saw that the fruit was there, and God said, don't have it. And if she, she saw that it was a delight, it was, and it, was a, it could make one wise. Because she'd seen the serpent talking. So she thinks to herself, God is keeping something from me. And then we question God's goodness to us, because we start comparing ourselves. I've said this many times. Comparison kills contentment. Comparison kills contentment. I've shared this story. Uh, I, I remember the first time that I really realized this, I was, a, I was in fifth grade. We had a log roll on the playground. Remember those things? You'd run on it like an idiot just to get your, you know, your energy off. Um, and I remember playing on it, and I had just got my pro wings from Walmart. Remember pro wings? They were pro wings, right? I mean, I was grew up in a single parent household. My mother had pa- my father had passed away when I was young. We didn't have a lot, but I got new sneakers. And of course, at that age, you think your sneakers can make you run faster. And that's what I thought. And I remember thinking, I got these new pro wings. And my friend Carl, Carl uh, came from a little bit more money than I did, and he always had all the name brand things. And he goes up, pro wings stink. Then he put his foot down and he had on Nikes. Now I didn't know what Nikes were then, but I knew what they were after that. And I came home, and I looked at my mom, and I went, I hate my shoes. And she's like, why? I said, because they're terrible. They're not Nikes. My brother goes, we can go get a can of spray paint and spray paint the swoosh on it. <laughs> so he suggested to me. Because, see, I compared myself, and I allowed my friend Carl to tell me that this was not good, and I believed him. And then I compared myself to him, and then I found myself short and angry and jealous now, that's just in a small way. I mean, think about that. As adults, it grows, and it costs a lot more money. Then, who's got the nicer car, the nicer house, the nicer clothes, all of these different things? And we compare with one another, and it kills our contentment. And you know what? We have more toys and more things than ever in the history of the world, and nobody's happy. We have more toys and things that we can use every day to save us time, and all we are is more miserable. We need more time. We don't have enough, more, enough time, right? All of these time-saving devices and gadgets that we have, we think makes our life better. Has it really made it that much better? See, it's just made us think we can do more and want more and compare with other people more and more and more and more and more. And we see what people put online, by the way, 
And that causes it to be worse. Some of the worst things are on Facebook and Instagram. Because people take these pictures of themselves, making themselves, it's the ideal of themselves, not who they really are. People always want, this is what, this is the idea of what other people have. Look at their family. Look how great they are. Look how they're laughing. Or look how they're looking at that cup of coffee as they're reading the word of God. They're so studious with caffeine and God loves them so much more than me. I mean, these are stupid things that we do to ourselves. We're constantly comparing these ideals that we see that are going on. And God is saying, no, don't look to other people. Look to me and me alone. I'm the one who satisfies. And if I've done that in their life, bless them. You be satisfied with what I have given you. I have given you. We have to reaffirm God's goodness to us. Reminded me of the story. Actually, we had this happen our past week. One of my daughters was lamenting about a certain thing that a friend of hers had. And she was saying, oh, we don't have that. And I said, well, we don't have the money for that, honey. Sorry, we just, I can't buy you every thing that's out there. I mean, we choose to use our money in different ways. And, and this is a godly family that she was comparing herself to, a great family. And she goes, well, why do they get that stuff and we don't? I said, you know, the Bible talks a little bit about that. So in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a parable of the talents. He says that a, a, a rich, uh, you know, a, a landowner or a, a lord, I guess you'd say, he gave to these three servants that he has as he's getting ready to go on a trip. And he gives one 10 talents, one five, and one one. And he, and he leaves, and the, the guy that has 10 goes off and invests it and doubles it, doubles the investment. The guy that had five goes out and invests his and doubles that. The guy who had one went and just hid it away, buried it. And when the, the, the owner comes back, he says, give an account. So the guy that had 10 goes, hey, I doubled your investment. He goes, well done, good and faithful servant. Here, I'll give you more. He goes, how about you, number five? Five goes, hey, I doubled it. I got more of it. I doubled it. And he goes, well done. Number five, you doubled it. I'm going to give you more. He goes, number one, how'd you do? And he goes, well, I buried it. And he's like, you wicked, lazy servant. Take that away and give it to the man that already has 10. And what's the point of that? I mean, yes, it's talking about God's kingdom, most of all. But it's also saying that God has blessed us all in different ways, with different abilities and different talents. It's what we do with what we have. Some have one. Some are blessed with five. Some blessed with 10. But what are you doing with God has given you? It's not about what else everybody else has. Are you being faithful with what God has given you? We have to be faithful with what God has given us. We have to reaffirm that God has been good to us. He has not treated us as our sins deserved. He has blessed us. And in this country, we are extremely blessed. I don't think we realize that. We are the, one of the wealthiest countries in the entire world. We have the ability to choose where we eat, what we do. You have the ability after the service today to choose whether or not you want to go out to eat or how you're, which route you're going to drive home. The fact that you have a car, that you can read, that you have indoor plumbing, you are blessed. God has been good to us. And if he's been good to us, then he's expecting us to be faithful with what he has entrusted to our care. We have to reaffirm God's goodness to us. The next thing we need to do, and it helps us to destroy jealousy, is when we recognize when God is at work. Recognize when God is at work. I want us to go back to our text. I want to look at verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 18. See, Saul responds in jealousy. I mean, he responds angrily. David's a threat. But really, was it the threat to Saul? If you think about it, who is Saul's heir to the throne? It was Jonathan, was it not? Notice how Jonathan responds to David. Look at verse 1. 
says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. He, he says he loved him. They're, they're brothers. He had, it was a closeness, this camaraderie. He loved him as his own soul. He cared so much for David. And Saul took him, on that, uh, took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. He wanted him to come be with him because Saul's paranoid. He goes, I've got to keep my enemy closer. But, then, but Jonathan loves him. And it says that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as he owned his own soul. Now, this is what's really impressive here in verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. Now, that may not mean a lot to us, but the robe, especially in the ancient world, symbolized inheritance. Symbolized inheritance. That's actually, many scholars debate on whether Joseph's coat from Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat was actually not one of many colors, but it was twice the length of normal, indicating that Joseph was going to get twice the inheritance of his brothers. So there's some animosity that's going on there. So, so Jonathan's saying, you know what? This is the robe. Like, I'm the prince. This is the robe of the prince. But you know what? I'm giving it to you because I recognize that God is at work in your life in a greater way than he is in mine. And I know that God has chosen you. And I'm okay with that. Now think about that. This was the heir to the throne. And he's okay because he's recognizing that David was more gifted than him. He said, it says that he stripped off his robe in verse 4 and on it, gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servant. He recognizes that it's okay. Now, many of us aren't like that. When we have someone that's more talented than us, what do we do? Do we try to bring him down in order to bring ourselves up? I remember uh, when I first got hired here, um, I was interacting with our greater ministry team where one church meets in four locations. And I was interacting with two of our other pastors. And I, I wanted to know how this, this worked, this model worked, who was in charge. I come from a model where there was always a senior pastor. And we don't have a senior pastor here. We have campus pastors, we have elders, and they're all equal. And I, I remember going, uh, who's in charge? They're like, what do you mean who's in charge? We're all in charge. I'm like, no, 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 who's in charge? And they're like, no, who, nobody's in charge. I went, okay, who's driving the bus? We're not all driving the bus. And I remember when one of them looked at me and he said, one day I'll be driving the bus, the next day he'll be driving the bus, and the other day you'll be driving the bus. And I was like, that's nuts. <laughs> that's what I told him. But, you know, and I, uh, there's a part of me that wanted to be the, bu- the dress. There's just that part of you who wants to drive the bus, wants to be in charge. And I remember sitting in a meeting with these guys, and I saw their heart, and I saw the sacrifice, and I saw the stuff that they dealt with, and how far they were willing to go to meet with people and shepherd them and love them and care for them. And it wasn't for them about power. It was about loving people that God had given to them. So I, I pulled, I stepped back, and I remember one of them came to me, and he goes, wait a minute, what, what was all that talk about driving the bus? You, you don't seem to care about that anymore. He goes, Why, are, you, are you trying to drive the bus? And I went, I'm not trying to drive the bus anymore. He goes, what, what are you trying to do? I said, I'm, in, I'm a tourist just enjoying my seat on the bus. I'm letting you drive because you guys are driving it really well. And I see God's blessing on your lives. And, you bless, and, you, and you're doing it better than me. See, are we willing to always do that? I can't say that my, I mean, that answer I felt was good, but there's been other times in my life where it's not been good. See, I, it took me a while to realize and recognize when God is at work. Jonathan did. Jonathan recognized that God was at work. We have to remember that and recognize when he's at work and fully throw our support behind it. And after that, we need to rekindle God's love in our hearts. We need to rekindle God's love 
in our hearts. We need to ask God to help us to be jealous for him and him alone, not for other people. We need to pour out our heart to him and ask him to rekindle the love that we are supposed to have for God first and people second. It's a heart to give out love even when we're feeling empty. We need to make sure that we are asking God to just bring his love back into our heart and see things from his perspective. And then lastly, we need to rejoice that God's work will be accomplished. See, Saul wasn't doing that. He wasn't rejoicing that, but, David, but Jonathan, in essence, was. I remember there was a time, as I mentioned before, the answer that I had with my colleagues here was much better, but when I was a church pastor in Massachusetts, I had an intern who was extremely talented. Uh, he ta- interned under me, and he was a gifted preacher. He was a gifted leader. People followed him. He was discipling, and I kept him at arm's length because I was, in essence, afraid of him. He was, he was younger than me. He wasn't prettier than me, but he was... <laughs> He, he, uh, he was just a really talented guy, really talented guy. And uh, after I ended up leaving the church, the, the leaders of the church came to me and they said, do you think you'd make a good leader? And in my jealousy, I didn't want him to be a good leader because I wanted to be better. And I said, I don't think that he, he's going to do a good job. And I said, he's just not ready yet. So they went, they went took that back, and then they decided, though, to hire him anyway. And, and the church went, really grew after that. And I felt ashamed because I was caring more about myself and how I was viewed rather than God's kingdom. And I ended up being at a conference with him accidentally. And I saw him out in front of me and I decided to call him on my cell phone. And I was gonna, it's kind of funny. I call him and I see him because I can see his head where he's at. And then I call him and then I realize he pulls out his phone and I'm gonna find out about our relationship real fast. Is he gonna answer the phone or is he gonna not? And he turns and looks around. (laughs) And he answers the phone, and we start talking. And we, after the conference is over, we go out and grab a bite. And I told him, I said, I confessed to him. I said, brother, I have to apologize to you. I said, I was jealous of you. I said, you were more gifted. You're the person to be for this job. And I should have cared more about God's kingdom and recognized his hand on your life. And he said, I never knew that, but I thank you for that. And I said, it's about the kingdom. That's what's most important. I have to keep that perspective. And God taught me a huge lesson there. It's not about us. It's about God's kingdom and seeing what he has done. And he's doing in our lives. We have to be careful of that. We can't let jealousy overtake us, even in ministry. Because jealousy can derail us extremely, extremely fast. Jealousy can destroy our lives, marriages, friendships, work relationships. We need to make sure that we run to God, whose name is Jealous, to understand what jealousy truly is, that good jealousy and the bad jealousy. We must remember that he is not jealous in the same sense that Oprah thought he was jealous. He is the only one where his jealousy is not tinged by circumstances or lack of information. He is jealous for us. He wants our heart. And he showed that supremely through his son, Jesus Christ. That God would humble himself by assuming our flesh, to coming and live amongst us. He was not far removed, but he humbled himself to take our sins upon himself. Our sins, our struggles, our sicknesses. That's the depth of his love. He's jealous for us and he wants to show us that love so much that he's willing to make himself susceptible to the other aspects of the creation. What a great God that we serve. That he is, a, he, he is the, the supreme example of love, humility, power, goodness, faith, mercy. He cares for us. And he's shown himself supremely through his son, that God gave him to die on the cross for our sins, that through him that we can have eternal life. And he continually yearns for our souls and longs for us to be with him. Isn't that a good news? 
That's good news. And if you're here today and yet you're wondering who Jesus is, understand that God loves you, that he's jealous for you in the good, best sense of the word, that he loves, for you, loves you and he, he hates how you turn to sin rather than him, that you've held on to your sin and that you keep filling yourself with all kinds of things that doesn't satisfy and he's calling you unto himself. He's saying, put aside your drink, put aside your drugs, put aside those relationships, put aside all of those things and addictions and things that are warring against your soul and receive me and I will give you peace and freedom because I love you. That's what he offers today. And it's very simple that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For it is with the mouth that one, one confesses. And it's with the heart one believes and is justified and is saved. Your sins are forgiven and you become a new creation in Christ. You've been freed from the power of sin. Now you may not be freed from that complete presence of sin. But God will help and he'll give you his spirit. He's given a church body to come around you to help you put to death your sinful nature and live that life that he has for you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come into your presence knowing that you are jealous for us. And Lord, help us to put aside our jealousy, that bad jealousy that keeps us from becoming the people that you want us to be, that imprisons us and keeps us captive and wars against our soul. Lord, may we seek the better, betterment of others. May we seek the, the growth of your kingdom, even if it means loss to ourselves. Because it's not our name, Lord. It's your name that needs to go forth. Because your name is the only one that can save. It's not about our egos or about who we are or getting our name up in lights or getting the most likes on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Lord, it's about seeing you high and lifted up and seeing your name go forth, that people who are lost in darkness might see the light and life of Christ and be transformed for your glory and their joy. Thank you and we praise you. We pray that you continue to work within us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.